Section 7 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Lakin. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 3, by James Boswell, Section 7. Honest Catcott seemed to pay no attention whatever to any objections, but insisted, as an end of all controversy, that we should go with him to the tower of the church of St. Mary Redcliffe, and view with our own eyes the ancient chest in which the manuscripts were found. To this Dr. Johnson good-naturedly agreed, and, though troubled with a shortness of breath, laboured up a long flight of steps, till we came to the place where the wondrous chest stood. There, said Catcott, with a bounding confident credulity, there is the very chest itself. Footnote. Catcott had been anticipated by Smith the weaver. Sir, he made a chimney in my father's house, and the bricks are alive at this day to testify it. Therefore, deny it not. End of footnote. After this ocular demonstration, there was no more to be said. He brought to my recollection a Scotch Highlander, a man of learning, too, and who had seen the world, attesting, and at the same time giving his reasons for the authenticity of Fingal. I have heard all that poem when I was young. Have you, sir? Pray, what have you heard? I have heard Ossian, Oscar, and every one of them. Johnson said of Chatterton, this is the most extraordinary young man that has encountered my knowledge. It is wonderful how the whelp has written such things. Footnote. Horace Walpole says that when he was dining at the Royal Academy, Dr. Goldsmith drew the attention of the company with an account of a marvellous treasure of ancient poems lately discovered at Bristol, and expressed enthusiastic belief in them, for which he was laughed at by Dr. Johnson, who was present. You may imagine we did not at all agree in the measure of our faith, but though his credulity diverted me, my mirth was soon dashed, for on asking about Chatterton, he told me that he had been in London and had destroyed himself. End of footnote. We were by no means pleased with our inn at Bristol. Let us see now, said I. How should I describe it? Johnson was ready with his raillery. Describe it, sir! Why, it was so bad that Boswell wished to be in Scotland. After Johnson's return to London, footnote. Boswell returned a few days earlier. On May 1st he wrote to Temple, Luckily Dr. Taylor has begged of Dr. Johnson to come to London to assist him in some interesting business, and Johnson loves much to be so consulted, and so comes up. I am now at General Paoli's, quite easy and gay, after my journey not wearied in body or dissipated in mind. I have lodgings in Gerard Street, where cards are left to me, but I lie at the General's, whose attention to me is beautiful. Johnson wrote to Mrs. Thrale on May 6th, "'Tomorrow I am to dine as I did yesterday with Dr. Taylor. On Wednesday I am to dine with Oglethorpe, and on Thursday with Paoli. He that sees before him to his third dinner has a long prospect.'" I was several times with him at his house, where I occasionally slept, in the room that had been assigned to me. I dined with him at Dr. Taylor's, at General Oglethorpe's, and at General Paoli's. 
To avoid a tedious minuteness, I shall group together what I have preserved of his conversation during this period also, without specifying each scene where it passed, except one, which will be found so remarkable as certainly to deserve a very particular relation. Where the place or the persons do not contribute to the zest of the conversation, it is unnecessary to encumber my pages but with mentioning them. I know of what vintage our wine is, enables us to judge of its value, and to drink it with more relish. But to have the produce of each vine of one vineyard in the same year kept separate would serve no purpose. To know that our wine, to use an advertising phrase, is of the stock of an ambassador lately deceased, heightens its flavor, but signifies nothing to know the bin where each bottle was once deposited. Garrick, he observed, does not play the part of archer in the bow-stratagem well. The gentleman should break out through the footman, which is not the case as he does it. Footnote. In Dramatis Personae of the play Aimwell and Archer, two gentlemen of broken fortunes, the first as master, the second as servant. End of footnote. Where there is no education, as in savage countries, men will have the upper hand of women. Bodily strength, no doubt, contributes to this, but it would be so exclusive of that, for it is the mind that always governs. When it comes to dry understanding, man has the better. The volumes entitled Respublicae, which are very well done, were a bookseller's work. Footnote. Johnson is speaking of Respublicae as a venere, either thirty-six or sixty-two volumes. It depends on every collector what and how much he will admit. End of footnote. There is much talk of the misery which we cause to brute creation, but they are recompensed by existence. If they were not useful to man, and therefore protected by him, they would not be nearly so numerous. This argument is to be found in the able and benign Hutchinson's moral philosophy. But the question is whether the animals who endure such sufferings of various kinds for the service and entertainment of man would accept of existence upon the terms on which they have made it. Madame Sévigny. Footnote. In the first edition, Madame de Sévigny's name is printed Sévigny. In the second, Sévigny. In the third, Sévigny. Authors and compositors last century troubled themselves little about French words. End of footnote. Who, though she had many enjoyments, felt with delicate sensibility the prevalence of misery, complains of the task of existence having been imposed upon her without her consent. Footnote. Milton had put the same complaint into Adam's mouth. Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mould me man, as my will concurred not to my being, etc. Paradise Lost. End of footnote. That a man is never happy for the present is so true that all his relief from unhappiness is only forgetting himself for a little while. Life is a progress from want to want, not from enjoyment to enjoyment. Though many men are nominally entrusted with the administration of hospitals and other public institutions, almost all the good is done by one man, by whom the rest are driven on, owing to confidence in him and indolence in them. Footnote. Fielding, in the Covent Garden Journal of June 2nd, 1752, says of the difficulty of admission at the hospitals, The properest objects, those I mean who are the most wretched and friendless, may as well aspire at a place at court as at a place in the hospital. 
End of footnote. Lord Chesterfield's letters to his son, I think, might be made a very pretty book. Take out the immorality, and it should be put into the hands of every young gentleman. An elegant manner and easiness of behavior are acquired gradually and imperceptibly. No man can say, I'll be genteel. There are ten genteel women for one genteel man, because they are more restrained. A man without some degree of restraint is insufferable. But we are all less restrained than women. Were a woman sitting in company to put out her legs before her as most men do, we should be tempted to kick them in. No man was more attentive and nice observer of behavior in those in whose company he happened to be than Johnson. Or, however strange it may seem to many, had a higher estimation of its refinements. Footnote. We were talking of Dark Bernard, the provost of Eton. He was the only man, says Mr. Johnson, quite seriously, that did justice to my good breeding. And you may observe that I am well-bred to a degree of needless scrupulosity. No man, continued he, not observing the amazement of his hearers, no man is so cautious not to interrupt another. No man thinks it so necessary to appear attentive when others are speaking. No man so steadily refuses preference on himself, or so willingly bestows it on another, as I do. No man holds so strongly as I do the necessity of ceremony, or the ill effects which follow the breach of it. Yet people think me rude. But Barnard did me justice. Mrs. Piozzi writes, No man was indeed so attentive not to offend in all such sort of things as Dr. Johnson, nor so careful to maintain the ceremonies of life. And, though he told Mr. Thrale once that he had never sought to please till past thirty years old, considering the matter as hopeless, he had been always studious not to make enemies by apparent preference of himself. Johnson said, Sir, I look upon myself as a very polite man. End of footnote. Lord Elliot informs me that one day when Johnson and he were at dinner at a gentleman's house in London, upon Lord Chesterfield's letters being mentioned, Johnson surprised the company by this sentence. Every man of any education would rather be called a rascal than accused of deficiency in the graces. Mr. Gibbon, who was present, turned to a lady who knew Johnson well and lived much with him, and in his quaint manner, tapping his box, addressed her thus. "'Don't you think, madam,' looking towards Johnson, "'that among all your acquaintance you could find one exception?' The lady smiled and seemed to acquiesce. Footnote. The younger Coleman and his boy had met Johnson and Gibbon. Johnson was in his rusty brown and his black whiskers, and Gibbon in a suit of flowered velvet with a bag and sword. He condescended once or twice in the course of the evening to talk to me. The great historian was light and playful, suiting his manner to the capacity of the boy. But it was done more sua, sick. Still his mannerism prevailed. Still he tapped his snuff-box, still he smirked and smiled, and rounded his periods with the same air of good breeding as if he were conversing with men. His mouth, mellifluous as Plato's, was a round hole nearly in the centre of his visage. 
End of footnote. I read, said he, Sharp's letters on Italy over again when I was at Bath. There was a good deal of matter in them. Mrs. Williams was angry that Thrale's family did not send regularly to her every time they heard from me when I was in the Hebrides. Little people are apt to be jealous, but they should not be jealous, for they ought to consider that superior attention will necessarily be paid to superior fortune or rank. Two persons may have equal merit, and on that account may have an equal claim to attention." but one of them may also have fortune and rank, and so may have a double claim. Talking of his notes on Shakespeare, he said, I despise those who do not see that I am right in the passage, where as is repeated, and asses of great charge introduced, that on to be or not to be is disputable. Footnote. It may be observed that Mr. Malone, in his very valuable edition of Shakespeare, has fully vindicated Dr. Johnson from the idle censures which the first of these notes has given rise to. The interpretation of the other passage which Dr. Johnson allows to be disputable, he has clearly shown to be erroneous. Boswell. The first note is on the line in Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. As many such like asses of great charge... Johnson says. A quibble is intended between as the conditional particle and ass the beast of burden. On this, Stevens remarked, Shakespeare has so many quibbles of his own to answer for that there are those who think it hard he should be charged with others which perhaps he never thought of. The second note is on the opening of Hamlet's soliloquy in Act Three, Scene One. The line, To be or not to be, that is the question is thus paraphrased by Johnson. Before I can form any rational scheme of action under this pressure of duress, it is necessary to decide whether, after our present state, we are to be or not to be. End of footnote. A gentleman whom I found sitting with him one morning said that, in his opinion, the character of an infidel was more detestable than that of a man notoriously guilty of an atrocious crime. I differed from him, because we are surer of the odiousness of the one than of the error of the other. Johnson. Sir, I agree with him, for the infidel would be guilty of any crime if he were inclined to it. Many things which are false are transmitted from book to book, and gain credit in the world. One of these is the cry against the evil of luxury. Now the truth is that luxury produces much good. Take the luxury of buildings in London. Does it not produce real advantage in the convenience and elegance of accommodation? And this all from the exertion of industry. People will tell you, with a melancholy face, how many builders are in goal. It is plain they are in goal, not for building, for rents have not fallen. A man gives half a guinea for a dish of green peas. How much gardening does this occasion? How many laborers must the competition to have such things early in the market keep in employment? You will hear it said, very gravely. Why was not the half-guinea thus spent in luxury given to the poor? To how many might it have afforded a good meal? Alas, has it not gone to the industrious poor, whom it is better to support than the idle poor? You are much sure that you are doing good when you pay money to those who work, as a recompense of their labor, than when you give money merely in charity. 
Suppose the ancient luxury of a dish of peacock's brains were to be revived. How many carcasses would be left to the poor at a cheap rate? And as to the rout that is made about people who are ruined by extravagance, it is no matter to the nation that some individuals suffer. When so much general productive exertion is the consequence of luxury, the nation does not care, though there are debtors in gold. Nay, they would not care, though their creditors were there too." Footnote. Wesley wrote on January 21st, 1767, I had a conversation with an ingenious man who proved to a demonstration that it was the duty of every man that could to be clothed in purple and fine linen and to fare sumptuously every day, and that he would do abundantly more good hereby than he could by feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. Oh, the depth of human understanding! What may not a man believe if he will? Much the same argument Johnson, thirty-three years earlier, had introduced in one of his debates. He makes one of the speakers say, Our expenses are not all equally destructive. Some, though the method of raising them be vexatious and oppressive, do not much impoverish the nation, because they are refunded by the extravagance and luxury of those who are retained in the pay of the court. The whole argument is nothing but Mandevillian doctrine of private vices, public benefits. End of footnote. The uncommon vivacity of General Oglethorpe's mind, and variety of knowledge, having sometimes made his conversation seem too desolatory, Johnson observed, Oglethorpe, sir, never completes what he has to say. He on the same account made a similar remark on Patrick Lord Elibank. Sir! There is nothing conclusive in his talk. When I complained of having dined at a splendid table without hearing one sentence of conversation worthy of being remembered, he said, Sir, there is seldom any such conversation. Boswell. Why then meet at table? Johnson. Why to eat and drink together, and to promote kindness. And, sir, this is better done when there is no solid conversation. But when there is, people differ in opinion, and get into a bad humor. Or some of the company, who are not capable of such conversation, are left out, and feel themselves uneasy. It was for this reason Sir Robert Walpole said, He always talked body at his table, because in that all could join. Footnote. Johnson no doubt refers to Walpole in the following passage. Of one particular person, who has been at one time so popular as to be generally esteemed, and at another so formidable as to be universally detested, Mr. Savage observed, that his acquisitions had been small, or that his capacity was narrow, and that his whole range of his mind was from obscenity to politics, and from politics to obscenity. This passage is a curious comment on Pope's lines on Sir Robert. Seen him I have but in his happier hour, of social pleasure, ill-exchanged for power. End of footnote. Being irritated by hearing a gentleman, footnote, most likely Boswell himself, end of footnote, asked Mr. Levitt a variety of questions concerning him. When he was sitting by, he broke out, Sir, you have but two topics, yourself and me, and I am sick of both. A man, said he, should not talk of himself, nor much of any particular person. He should take care not to be made a proverb, and therefore should avoid having one topic of which people can say, We shall hear him upon it. 
There was a Dr. Oldfield, who was always talking of the Duke of Marlborough. He came into a coffee-house one day, and told his grace had spoken in the House of Lords for half an hour. "'Did he speak for half an hour?' said Belcher, the surgeon. "'Yes. And what did he say of Dr. Oldfield?' "'Nothing.' "'Why then, sir, he is very ungrateful.' "'But Dr. Oldfield could not have spoken for a quarter of an hour "'without saying something of him.' "'Every man is to take existence on the terms on which it is given to him. "'To some men it is given on condition of not taking liberties, "'which other men may take without much harm. "'One may drink wine and be nothing the worse for it. "'On another wine may have effects so inflammatory "'as to injure him in both body and mind, "'and perhaps make him commit something for which he may deserve to be hanged.' Lord Haley's Annals of Scotland have not that painted form which is the taste of this age, but it is a book which will always sell. It has such a stability of dates, such a certainty of facts, and such a punctuality of citation. I never before read Scotch history with certainty. I asked him whether he would advise me to read the Bible with a commentary, and what commentaries he would recommend. Johnson. To be sure, sir. I would have you read the Bible with a commentary, and I would recommend Loth and Patrick on the Old Testament, and Hammond on the New. During my stay in London this spring, I solicited his attention to another law case in which I was engaged. In the course of a contested election for the borough of Dumfrenline, which I attended as one of my friend Colonel, afterwards Sir Archibald Campbell's counsel, one of his political agents, who was charged with having been unfaithful to his employer, and having deserted to the opposite party for pecuniary reward, attacked very rudely in a newspaper the Reverend Mr. James Thompson, one of the ministers of that place, on account of a supposed allusion to him in one of his sermons. Upon this, the minister, on a subsequent Sunday, arraigned him by name from the pulpit, with some severity, and the agent, after the sermon was over, rose up and asked the minister aloud, "'What bribe he had received for telling so many lies from the chair of verity?' Footnote. A Gaelicism which, it appears, with so many others, become vernacular in Scotland. The French call a pulpit la chair de verité, Croker. End of footnote. End of section 7.